Has your local footy club had a recent clangor or challenge? Well, Amy is here to help. The Amy Clangers for Good competition is back for 2024. This year, Amy are donating $10 for every clangor recorded during the AFL season with eight community clubs in the chance to win up to $15,000. If you want your club to go into the running in 100 words or less, tell us how Amy can help your club bounce back from a recent challenge. Enter now at amy.com.au forward slash clangers for good. That's amy.com.au forward slash clangers for good. T's and C's apply. KO's got you covered for this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. AFL, here we go. Carlton versus Melbourne with no ad breaks during play. That is going to be an absolute banger. Last time these two uh, got together, well, not the last time, when I was there, I kicked three. Freo versus Swans, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. And the Hawks versus Saints, live with no ad breaks during play, is going to be an absolute blockbuster. It's a must win for both of these teams. And don't forget the NBA playoffs. Gee whiz, they are going off at the moment. So many big games to mention, and they will be absolutely enthralling. Watch every game live with both Eastern and Western conferences live with ESPN on KO. There's absolutely plenty of room for everyone, so get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble. Hey fam, thanks for tuning in to the best ofs on your Christmas holiday break. Hope you're enjoying it. You might be back at work. You might be on a road trip. You might be with family and friends. I don't know where you are, but wherever you are, hope you're safe. Thanks for tuning in. Um, yeah, it means the world. Looking forward to coming back again, as we said, in a big, big 2023. But I thought it'd be always good, as we did, uh, you know, we did with the sport last week, with the best ofs, and now this week we're going into the education and inspiration. So education and inspiration, we were, we were battling with the title of this. We didn't know what to put down, but we thought we'd just go with a bit of things that we've learnt, being education, then the inspiration in things that have sort of inspired us throughout the year and made us um, make take action from I suppose and this was a really really cool um, reflection of, of all the ones that have had a massive impact on us today so a bit of a recap we'll go through Christian O'Connell, Ned Brockman, Jonah Oliver, Bo Miles, Salte Sawalpu, Tom Harkin, Emma Murray, Richard Harris. Okay so first off Christian O'Connell Obviously, the gold one at 4.3, breakfast host, moving over from the UK, coming to London. This was so funny, like, honestly, coming in, because there's a really funny part where he, uh, I think if you live in Melbourne and you identified him um, coming into Australia on the radio, there was just branding everywhere of this guy, like Christian O'Connor. I was like, who the fuck is this bloke? I had no idea who he was. And um, that came up in the show, which was which is super funny because like it was a really bad PR for him from the start. Um, and he spoke about the difference from coming from from the UK to Australia. Obviously, being one of the best um, radio announcers in the UK, absolutely huge. And then he threw his life um, on its head and, and moved over to Australia. And that was because of some um, one a change of lifestyle that they wanted to do with the family, but two was a bit of a um, mental uh, anxiety attacks that he was he was facing um, and dealing with in the UK, which which was really evident in himself. And I don't want to tell this story. I think it we really cool to hear it from him himself. But again, one of those episodes that I really enjoyed. Um, here's Christian O'Connell. Your story around radio. I'd love to get into your your personal story around around your mental health and mm-hmm. around your. Um, I suppose that discovery of where you're at in in that. Um, I think I can. You know, I've obviously read your book and 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 have a fair understanding but have so many questions because it's it, i think that that's the beauty of telling a story so many people can take out what they like of it because in that you always internalize right like i'm reading your book going oh my god 
you know, yes, like that's what I'm experiencing or, oh, what do, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by this? But I would love to, um, if you're happy to, share your story of, of your mental health journey and, and when yeah, of course. it opened your book basically talking about, um, you know, spewing in a bin. Yeah. Um, so basically- Take it wherever you like though. That's Yeah, where, I yeah. guess I'll go about eight years. So yeah, my show was number one breakfast show in the UK and going really well. I was in my mid-40s and- so on paper, I'd had everything I'd worked for. I had a beautiful wife, I had a really nice house, and had two beautiful daughters. I was winning awards. The show was going very well. This was on paper what I'd been working for for all my life. And I suddenly started to feel stagnant. I suddenly felt that my life, I'd made my life too small for myself. I was starting to feel quite anxious. And so with that unrest, I just decided to try and out-hustle it. I started to go back to stand-up. I was doing stand-up tours. Um, I wrote two children's books, which I loved doing, but I was trying to keep myself busy. When I look back now, at the time when I started to have very severe panic attacks, I used to say, I just came out of nowhere. Now I can look back, no, they hadn't. I was just like, I guess like the people in Chernobyl, when the alarms start going off, they go, oh, just bang that one, there's another one here. That that was me. The, the, the alarm signals I was just trying to ignore. Um, and then eventually what always happens in life is, it's like a wave that just keeps coming back to you and comes back to you and it will feel, find some way to break you down, either physically, spiritually or mentally. And so for me, it was suddenly very, very severe panic attacks. And it was suddenly out of nowhere. I'd never been nervous before doing a radio show. It was suddenly right an hour before doing my radio show. So bad where I walk into the radio station and have to get back out. There. I thought I was going to actually die. That's why it's called a panic attack. And my wife was great. She was like, maybe just don't do live radio anymore. And I said, this is all I've ever done. This is in my heart. I love doing it. And so it was actually talk about an identity. I I had built up an identity mm. beyond being a successful radio guy, and then suddenly the thought of that being taken away was just like not only and what am I going to do? Uh, then I'm a terrible husband, uh, a terrible dad to my daughters. My God, what is wrong with me? I'm weak. I'm pathetic. Why can't I be stronger? And then very reluctantly, my wife said, "Look, I think actually you need help." And she was right. I did. But it's very, I found it so hard to admit to myself. I knew I did need help, but there's that ego, what it is with men. It felt like it was a thing. I remember the first therapy session with a guy who literally did work out of a shed at the bottom of his garden. He was a, he was a great guy, but it was, it was a posh shed, but it was a shed at the bottom of his garden, which is one of the books, I call him Man in the Shed. <laughs> you know. And um, But anyway, I remember the first session I said, I don't want to be here. And he sort of laughed like, here we go. Another dude who doesn't think he needs to be here. And he was like, well, you are. Um, you booked it. So yeah. and I was like, he goes, why don't you want to be here? And I actually said, I feel terrible. What a terrible thing to say, a very cruel way to speak about myself. But I said, Therapy is for fuck-ups. I'm not a fuck-up. I don't know why I'm here. And he went, well, I think we're going to be unpacking that for a couple of months. <laughs> Therapy's for fuck-ups. But he goes, you are. You have fucked up. You're here. Why do you think you fucked up? And so it was a process of unraveling and stuff like that. But getting help was the best thing I ever did for myself. It was. And uh, I did therapy, even though I was probably the worst client for the first couple of months. But it was, it was a great thing for me. And then I managed to not like when I, I remember then on the second session, I was like, I've got these panic attacks and I kept saying it keeps happening to me. And uh, I just want to know, I, I just want you to almost like cut it out. And he's going, if I could cut out anxiety, fear, people, I'd be a billionaire surgeon. I do it all around the world. Okay. Plus you keep saying it's an it, it's you. It's not an it. 
That's your problem is your relationship. Same with all of us. Your relationship with your struggles, your problems. The moment you turn into an it, you make it into a monster. It's bigger than you. You are powerless. You're giving away your power, your courage. You have to almost befriend that part of yourself that is struggling. And so, you know, it was quite a journey with it, going through therapy. But I did. I learned and unlo- uh, a lot of stuff, which the great thing was, though, about a year into it, I felt my mojo coming back. And I was back on the radio. It wasn't like they were completely over the panic attacks, but I was getting a lot better at um, dealing with the early rumblings. And one was that I literally I, I went on a week's retreat, never done it before in my life, to uh, go and do breath work. Went to a place in Spain to do breath work. I remember what my wife and kids were like, is he having an affair? <laughs> Who goes away to, we know how to breathe. <laughs> you don't know how to breathe, you'd be dead. Would you really go and breathe for a week in Spain? But I did, and I absolutely loved it, right? Was it like Wim Hof or something? No, 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 No. it wasn't Wim Hof. No, it's a different kind of style, less sort of aggressive. But it was a game changer for me. So much so, I love breathwork. I'm now midway through training to be a breathwork coach. Wow. Never, ever thought that I'd ever be, you know, part of my life plan was to be teaching people how to do breathwork. But what's an amazing thing to come out of this? So anyway, breathwork was a part of what I still do every day. Um, But I got my mojo back, and I realized, actually, do you know what? And I think sometimes when we're in struggle, how we are, how we feel right now is how we feel about the world. So if you're in a great mood, everything's possible, isn't it? We can move to India and become content creators. We can go to America and do that. But when you're struggling, your lens is so different. It gets fogged up and everything's like, I can't do anything. I can't even get out of the bed right now. I don't know how I'm going to get into next Monday. And so I started to get a sense of that actually, I think sometimes in life, it becomes an ordeal. We tell ourselves that this is an ordeal. It's something I've got to endure life. I think sometimes you need to remind yourself, is life a trial that you need to endure or is life an adventure you get to have and they're going to be ups and downs? Mm. And I realise actually I've forgotten that if I look back at my life, sometimes looking back at your life, there are clues along your road that you've walked down. I look back at my life and my wife's, like, oh my God, we moved around the country, we do this, you gave up your lawyer's job, I quit that. I said... We've always made it an adventure. We've we've forgotten to do that, actually, because we became successful. And I was like, I, I want to have an adventure. And we talked and talked a lot. We both said how much we loved Australia. And about 12 years ago, I first met Hamish and Andy, and they constantly kept saying, you should come and do radio in Australia. There's no one like you. Come and do radio. Move to Melbourne. You know, it's a real authentic city. We're like, why don't we go on holiday? And just have, go and stay in Melbourne, go around Australia before we decide it. We came here, we took the kids here, we loved it. And then I reached out to a couple of people I know on radio, radio around the world. You, people kind of know who the decent people are. And I was offered a, a breakfast show here. And then I was like, oh, I don't think I can do it. Because uh, it was just like, I was going to quit a job. They just offered me a new five-year deal, a pay rise. And it was like, so that's guaranteed easy, safe, you've got all the goodwill, two and a half million listeners, or you're going to go for the unknown where no one knows who you are, you're in your mid-40s, looks a bit like a midlife crisis, you're throwing it all away. And I said, wife, well, I can't do it. At least you almost start have panic attacks. Yeah. And I was like, I can't do it. It's all on me because if this doesn't work out, we've got to come back here and I don't I, that's just going to be unbearable, you know, moving the kids over there at that age, schooling. My wife said, um, I believe in you. I said, but I don't, I don't know if it's going to work. She went... It doesn't matter. If you if it doesn't work out, 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 out of there, that's because you you would have found a way to try and make it work. And if it doesn't, and it's not right, then she actually said, fuck them. You're too good for them. She said, but I know you. She goes, you're trying to make it work. I think it will work, but I'd rather be with you knowing that you could risk it. She said, when, I, when you said you want to quit your sales job, 
I was excited because I was like, oh, my great. This is the guy I actually married. This is someone that wants mm. to take a risk. She said, what are you showing to your daughters? That if you don't do this, so you're just saying to our kids, oh, you should only take a risk. If you know it's going to work out really yeah. well. Risk means risk. Risk means proper risk. Like, I don't know whether I'm going actually going to get sacked for the first time in my career, which was a very distinct possibility in the first year. So it turns out Australians did not want to hear an English guy <laughs> early in the morning. They fucking hated me, right? So there you have it. That was Christian O'Connell. Make sure you tune in to, to that episode um, as it is. There was another little part that I really enjoyed in that too, and it sort of kickstarted the greenery, but we really bonded over the trees and sitting under trees, getting our feet to the ground um, and all that as well. So that was episode 156 from Christian O'Connell. Check that bad boy out. Moving on. Now, if you haven't heard this episode, gee whiz, I don't know what you've been doing. You might have been living under a rock or a tree. It's 170 with Ned Brockman. Um, and, uh, this was the second one. So obviously we had him before he got here, um, before he went on his, his trek, obviously. And then after he went on his trek, which was really, really cool. So that was 150, um, the one before it as well. Now this chat, obviously there's heaps in there that we learned. I think it was one of our biggest ones of the year. Obviously came second in the BNF. This was a really crazy part that was, uh, was nuts that, um, I really picked up out of, but there was the time where he was injured, had to, I think it was 12 days from memory into his trip where we had to drive like 12 hours out of town to go get the MRI and come back. I can't tell this story as good as he does. Here it is. Have a listen. Let's start at the run. So, uh, sorry, go back to the run. So he's starting day one, take off, all sort of smooth sailing till day 11. Is it, well, that's fair to say, or um, was it? Yeah. In terms of injuries. In terms um, of injuries. I had, oh, I st- did you realise how enough, hilly it was going to be? Not out of Perth. Yeah, okay. Because that, then, was a, that, was, that rattled me too because I was watching you going like, I didn't even think about it. 1,400 K on the first, 1,400 <laughs> metres on the first day. Which So much elevation. It's a lot, man. Um, it was so funny. So again, with my like confidence, when you do something like that, obviously your confidence is you are, you are the man, nothing can stop you. But prior to that, I was, I, of course you have self-doubt. Right. Yeah. And when I was speaking to you prior to the run, I had the most severe knee pain, but I, I've set this goal. I'm talking to you. It's out there, right? I'm telling all these people about, and, and all the K's I'm doing and this and that. And, you know, I don't need to tell people and deep down I'm going, oh, fuck. Now I've told everyone I'm going to do this. And I knew I could, but there's always that other side of you going, oh, you can't do it. And that this, this is that self-doubt battle every day, right? But I had knee pain. Can I tell you something? Yeah. I love this now because when we had that chat, yeah. right? About the trauma? Not about, about like before when you came in and we were talking about it and I left and I was like, that was fucking incredible. But I was like, there's just no fucking way he's not doubting himself. Mm. But I said, I said, the reason he's not admitting that is because you can't admit that you before you go. In, you can't let it step no. in. So I was like, that's so interesting Imagine to finally, one- you, yeah, you couldn't say that then. No. But in my head, I was like, I reckon there must be some doubt, but you can't let yourself say it before it happens, if that makes sense. I can't explain to you the power of the mind in that regard. So yeah. when you, even on the run, if someone goes, hey, feeling you, I've never, ever, ever been better, mate, in my life. Like, you just bullshit your way because if you, yeah, if you let a tiny little bit, that just becomes everything. And then that's your reason on day 11 to quit mm. because, yeah, I am in pain. But, yeah, so I've, I have I was in knee pain, like, the I ran probably 40k max a week after I saw you, um, which was about 10 weeks out from the run or, or yep. nine weeks. Yep. Um, and so I ran four, 40k a week, which is for the average Joe Blow, pretty good week for someone preparing to run 700k a week is not great. Um, 
I was smacking my strength training, but I had, I was worried about my knee pain. Mm. Um, and I've gone to my physio and he's on, look, mate, it'll, you can't, no one died from sore knees. You'll be right. And so I just wrote that up on my wall. No one died from sore knees. Um, and then that was it. And so I just thought, okay, run with your knee pain. And then, um, ran the Gold Coast Marathon, had a severe stress reaction in my tibia. Um, went and scanned it, took four weeks off running and strength trained two weeks out prior to this event where I'm running. No one knew. knew. And uh, it was literally wake the fuck up. What are you doing? You're running hundred K a day. Go to bed. What are you doing? Run hundred K a day. And there was just this mindset of like, you are not fucking leaving. You're going to go out in a body bag. hundred percent. I, I dead set had to get to that level before I even started. Um, and so, yeah, I ran a, <laughs> I started off, um, got to day three and my knees were swollen like balloons. My physio rocked up day three and goes, oh shit, we gotta, we got to get onto this. So he would wrap my knee in cling wrap with um, Hirudoid cream and Voltaren and they would just sweat all night. So a lot of inflammation happening, but this was like quite good, but it was putting a lot of stress on my liver. So every night I would just sweat and sweat and sweat because it couldn't get rid of this thing because he was cling wrapping it, so it would sweat. Yeah. But it would stay, you know, around my knee, so it would just continue to de-inflame, deflame, whatever yep. it is. Yep. Um, and then by day eight, the knee pain left. It was this, it was mind boggling. Like you can quite literally run through this stuff. It's just, you don't, you have to, you get knee pain. You got to sort it out. You got to do strength training. You know, the, the, the classic physiotherapy way is to just, you know, sort it out, um, through time off. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, we didn't have that luxury. So, um, you can actually run through it. I wouldn't highly, highly not recommend that. <laughs> uh, but you can. And so we got to day eight. My shin started playing up. I started feeling a bit of shin pain. And then um, my physio, Alex Bell, left on day 10 that night. And the next day I got to 42K and thought, I've snapped my – like there's a crack in my tibia. I was in that much pain. I just – it was fucked. I've, I've strapped it up with white tape and like compressed my leg and put a um, compression sock around it. And I ended up getting the 100K done that day. So I ran 1,100K in 11 days. And um, that night I finished – the latest I've finished at like 9 o'clock – I pulled in the um, roadhouse and I've ice put straight in the ice and I just went, this is going to be grim tomorrow. Um, and then up at 3, 3.50 in the morning, started at 4.30 and I just could not run for the life of me. It was so swollen. It was just swelling all around my whole shin. Like it, I grew two testicles on my leg, dead set. And um, I tried, honestly, I reckon I tried 25 times to run and I just couldn't. So I walked 42K that day. I went, I've got to – because this is also the time where – I had this in the back of my mind and smooth sailing, I guess, in terms of distances, I've got this record in the bag and now I've got to kind of tell the people following along and, and tell myself that it's okay to only do 42 K 42 K is still fucking long way. But in the mindset I was in, I had to somehow justify it. Pulled a pin at 42, which was middle of the day. And then, um, went nice bath, laid down, thought we'll be right tomorrow. Exact same thing happened. Could not run 40 K organized a, um, a scan to the nearest MRI joint, which was 14 hours away. Um, cause you know, Australia is wide and vast. There's and not many on the nullable of the MRI. Funnily enough, there's yeah. not one in the roadhouse <laughs> yeah. in the nullable roadhouse. So we had to drive the road I was going to run. Oh yeah. That oh, yeah. would have been a mind fuck. Mate. So we had to drive it that afternoon and we got to Wyala the next day. So we stayed in Sejuna, which is like middle halfway across the country. Got to Wyala and the sports doc in Sydney has, was ordered a, um, 
a rushed MRI and they got me in at 12 o'clock. I got the results at one and he goes, good news is you don't have a bone break. And I went, oh, fuck yeah. He goes, strongest bones I've seen. Bad news is you've got uh, tenosynovitis in your anterior, anterior tibialis, which is your shin muscle. Um, and put simply, it's an um, inflammation of your sheath around your tendon, which should be immobilized for six weeks. So you, you literally put it in a boot for six weeks. That's the protocol for that injury every, every day of the week. I go, okay, cool. So what's, plan, what's, what's the other option? And he's like, uh, there really isn't. But what we can do is inject it and maybe hopefully it works. Hopefully that injection will, you know, give you some relief in like five or six days. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. So we, we rushed an injection in this Wyala hospital. Like it's a crazy what someone with a bit of credentials can do like in terms of pull. Yeah. Because you can't get an MRI there for two weeks if you live there. Uh, but yeah, got in and um, got the injection, numbed it for about an hour and then it, the anesthetic wore off and um, I was back in pain and we found a dictus band, which is like a um, someone with dropped foot. Um, they tie it around your ankle and it lifts up your foot for people with lack of foot function. And uh, cause like dead set couldn't lift it up off the floor. And yeah, we, um, we drove back 14 hours that night. Gemma, my girlfriend drove back um, throughout the night, got back at 3am and started running at 5am and um, got the hundred K done that next day. Mate, that is unbelievable. Yeah, and that was the start of the shit show with injuries. So there you have it. That was that story. Um, the other one that I really liked as well, and just that message that is, is just so evident from Ned Brockman, I think that's gone across the whole nation. Not, not just our show, sorry, but just let's go. Get it done. Get up. Get out there. No matter how, what you're feeling, this guy's running 100 kilometers a day, um, and I think he's inspired a lot of people across the country, and I know he's inspired us at the office to get moving too. It's something that we still speak about. Now, if um, if Ned's doing that, it makes you feel pretty pretty shit if you can't just you know go to the gym for twenty minutes. Um, so good on him, love it, and can't wait to hear back from him next year. Next up, we are going on to Jonah Oliver. Now, this is a funny story. When I first became aware of Jonah Oliver, again, it was back in when we we're in um, Scotland at the Open. I was chatting to heaps of people from Golf Australia, and they'll ask about the podcast. They're like, far out, you know. If there's one person you talk to, it's this guy Jonah Oliver. Jonah Oliver. Jonah Oliver. It just kept coming up, and. I was like, yep, done. I need to get this guy on. Had a little Zoom uh, meet with him. He was sort of sussing me out because he doesn't do a lot of this stuff. Um, and I remember being in Greece actually with Juz and I had a Zoom meeting with him to sort of talk about what the podcast was going to be about. Four months later, it eventuates. He's back in Australia and we finally had this chat. I think it was episode 143. Is that right? No, 163. That's correct. 163. Check this one out. I must say for me at the time I heard this episode and just where I was at with everything – in my life, this was the probably my favorite episode of the year, I must say. Um, this chat, he talks about uh, confidence, for, confidence versus competence. Um, I love it. I really, really love it. I think it's such an incredible point that he talks about. I'm not going to try and tell it, but here it is. Have a listen. Well, it's the most common thing I get asked to help with. Jonah, can you help me with my confidence? Or I'm struggling with low confidence or... A coach will say, Jonah, you know, these guys aren't confident enough. And it's like this obsession with confidence because the belief is if I feel confident, I'll play well. Whereas what they're really saying is they want competence. Now, what's the difference? Confidence is an emotion. I'm feeling a certain way. Whereas competence is a behavior. I can do something. And, and I, I use playful metaphor, right? Me at a karaoke bar with six beers in my belly, I'll jump up on that stage and I cannot sing. <laughs> doesn't matter how confident I am, I can't sing. 
right? Yet there's plenty of people out there who have amazing voices, but they're too caught up in their story to get up on stage and sing, right? I'd much rather have somebody who's actually competent singing at my wedding than somebody who's confident, who's probably my best man, and butchers <laughs> it, right? So, you know, in life, in sport, we've got to focus more on bringing people's competencies out and not real, not not searching for this idea that we have to be confident before that can happen. You know, confidence actually follows competence, you know, do you want a confident team or a competent team? Oh, John, we need both. No, no, I'll give you a choice point. Which one do you want? A competent team or a confident team, right? Of course, most coaches then get it and go, well, we just want them to be competent, right? I, I even be more playful when clients say, Jonah, can you help me with my confidence? I say, tell me what it looks like. I'll do an Etch-A-Sketch and put up some posters around the neighborhood. I'll go searching for your confidence. Can you just go out there today and just do what you normally do at training? Just, you know, just repeat the behaviors that you're really good at and I'll meet you at the end of the game and, we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. And, of course, they, you know, come at the end of the game and, oh, Jonah, I found my confidence halfway through the game. Oh, wonder why, you know, connecting to competence. But even athletes and coaches get their language wrong. Mm. Mate, you played really well out there today. Yeah, yeah, I was just super confident. It's like the ball doesn't know what you're thinking and feeling. You swung the club head through the ball square. You kick the ball between the sticks. You put your head over the ball. You, you know, you behaved competently, but then we use the wrong language and we say we're really confident and then we unintentionally go searching for it again and again and again because we think that the reason we played well was because we felt confident versus mm. we displayed competent behaviours. If I can just connect to my competence and let go of my attachment to needing to feel confident, then I'm now much more likely to be consistent because there'll be days, no matter who I am, where I feel great. There'll be days where I feel crap. There'll be days where I feel in between. There'll be days where I feel doubtful, worried, anxious, angry, the usual tapestry of being a human. But if I just come back to my competencies, then I can repeat behavior more, you know, more predictably and all of a sudden I build up a, you know, a pattern of behavior and I've got some form and or whatever story I want to create around it and I've had a consistent season because I'm behaving mm. competently and consistently whilst being emotionally normal and human, which means highly varied at times, and that doesn't matter. I have to tell you this story. I was there on the 17th um, hole, which yep. for anyone who watched that, that, um, that comp, you know, around the scores, he was basically, I think at that stage, even with Rory. Yeah. He was in front hit his ball into this green, which is traditionally one of the hardest holes on the course, landed in a terrible spot, like yep. absolutely terrible spot. There's this massive bunker that, you know, you could only, I was literally opposite him. Like you could only see half of his body coming over. And he's he was so calm in the way he just walked up to it, looked at it, you know, almost in a way boring. Like it was boring to watch because I was like, how, you know, he's just so calm. Like he was just so calm the way he did it. And he putted it over this hill, unbelievable, walked up to it again, did his same routine, made one of the most clutch putts I've ever seen, ever seen. Then coming through, I saw Rory. Now, not to comment about Rory, I don't know what happened, but he hit this amazing shot in, like amazing shot into the green, um, closer putt in a great spot, no break really in the green at all, and then missed the putt. And in my head, I was thinking, what was the difference between those two plays on that day? I wouldn't have a clue because I don't work with Rory but I'm going to debunk a critical thing that you just said. Yes. Cam was so nervous in those final five holes, he couldn't swallow water. He talks about this funny moment where he reached for the water bottle and we do some stuff with mindfulness and resetting and having a sip and all the usual grounding stuff and he nearly choked to death on international TV because his throat wouldn't swallow. <laughs> That's how nervous he was. 
right? Because he's human. He knew the score. He knew this context. He knew it was a major. He knew he was going to live. He knew the whole setting. He's not an idiot. And it mattered to him. He could hear the roaring of the crowd behind who were following Rory, so he knew the scorecard was coming. He knew the context. So he was super, super nervous. So I want you to understand that. Have I not learned anything today? <laughs> oh, like that was just so – that was unbelievable. But what he was, was he was composed. Yes. And committed. And competent. And consistent to his competency. So, you know, the morning of when he and I would meet for breakfast like we always do and let's go, what's our plan here? The plan was our usual plan. Don't change. What separates him from guys in the rest of the world is he's probably one of the best clients I've ever worked with at not changing when the rest of us probably would. Mm. He, he took the same start line, same targets, same shots, same what have you, even though his brain probably wanted to club down, play safe, decelerate, steer this one, just bring it home, whatever story is showing up in, in the brain. And unwaveringly, the answer to that is, I just play my values in action. This is how I play golf. But it frees people up. Like I said, you don't go to bed at night going, oh, I wonder what I need to do tomorrow. It's I know what I'll bring to the equation. That doesn't guarantee the scorecard's going to be your friend. Golf's hard. He might not have hit the ball well, but he knew what he was going to bring to it, i.e. him, his values in action, the best version of himself, and therefore let's get after it. So there you have it. That was uh, that was Jonah Oliver again. If you haven't listened to this episode, I could not please. This this was my favourite episode of the year. I want to get Jonah back in next year as well and, and update on a few things too. So really looking forward to that. Next up, we had another episode that I really enjoyed. I must say, I, I think, to be honest, the education inspiration segment might be my favourite um, segment of this year because these episodes have been huge. KO's got you covered for this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. AFL, here we go. Carlton versus Melbourne with no ad breaks during play. That is going to be an absolute banger. Last time these two uh, got together, well, not the last time, when I was there, I kicked three. Freo versus Swans, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. And the Hawks versus Saints, live with no ad breaks during play, is going to be an absolute blockbuster. It's a must win for both of these teams. And don't forget the NBA playoffs. Gee whiz, they are going off at the moment. So many big games to mention, and they will be absolutely enthralling. Watch every game live with both Eastern and Western conferences live with ESPN on KO. There's absolutely plenty of room for everyone, so get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble. Bo Miles, uh, Australian filmmaker, YouTuber, all-round incredible human. Um, There were so many parts of this episode that could have been highlighted, and I'm sure uh, we'll get to that point as well. But for the snippet we chose for this one was uh, was really interesting. He spoke about he spoke about hitchhiking, which was really interesting. Um, he hitchhiked all over the world, and and that's the way he got around um, around the world when he was he was doing it. He did on a low budget, and and the stories that came from that were were unbelievable. Here's uh, a little snippet of that, and we'll we'll go into it after. You mentioned something then. I didn't want to go into it, but now I can't not hitchhiking. Have you got a good hitchhiking story for us? It's oh, something that yeah. I've always wanted to do, but I just I don't know if I can. Oh yeah, I've I mean I hitchhike across <laughs> uh, into Canada and across the US, all all over Ireland. That was probably my funnest. Yeah, I um my auntie she was getting into it. She was she was trying to set up a website that had a photo of every Irish pub and every Irish main town and a whole bunch of town life in Ireland. Um, 
kind of like a, a mini Getty Images. You know, she wanted to do this thing. She's Irish. So she paid me a... I said, look, I'll do it for chips, right? She didn't have a big budget. So I think she gave me 15 euro a day for a month to travel around Ireland. And and so I used five pound at the pub, five five euro in the pub, five uh, for food, and then I kept five. That that, that was my, I was earning, earning a good day. <laughs> anyway, so I, I hitchhiked around Ireland uh, with, um, with a tripod and my camera and, and whatever. And I spent the last, I forget how many days it was, but I think it was a couple of weeks in jail. So I... I was, I had my two, yeah, and that's a good story. Um, so I'm in the pub and, and in, and in walks this bloke and I think, I reckon he's a detective. I've bloody pegged him, right? <laughs> so he saddles up next to me and, you know, we, we get chatting and, uh, anyway, he's looking at, he's, and he's looking at me like, who's this bloody blowing? Is he here to bloody rob the joint? Is he, what, what is he going to do? Because I've been sleeping in trains and I've been sleeping behind the bushes of pubs and I've been just sleeping wherever the frig I could, right? I never paid for accommodation. Yeah. It's a waste of money. Anyway, we have a couple of pints and I think I had three pints and that was, you know, so I would busted my budget for the day. And at the end of the conversation, he says, look, I'm a detective. I bloody, I bloody knew it, yeah. mate. Um, there's no one in the clink tonight. Do you want to just sleep in the police cell? Oh. And I said, shit, hell yeah, I do. <laughs> it was warm. No worries. He gave me a lift there. Um, plain clothes cop, you know. And then what he did, so I just go from town to town, and then he just he'd ring ahead, and then that and then that guarder, the policeman, would ring ahead to the next one. So I just went from from lock up to lock up. What the hell? Yeah, and just slept in in the in the clink. <laughs> unbelievable. What the hospitality in Ireland is unbelievable. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So drugs drugs has been about the only thing that has unpicked because they're a very Catholic yeah. uh, country too. They they didn't have a crime problem until drugs basically until the eighties. Wow. Zero. And so they're guard out there, they're police. They're basically like they're really good sort of community citizens. They're not not like here. It's the the whole gun culture thing. Shit, we've we've ruined it. But yeah, over there it was very it was, it was really nice. <laughs> what these experiences like? You must realise they're not everyday experience. Like a lot of people don't do things. Oh, like that. backpackers do all sorts yeah. of weird stuff. But yeah, I've had my fair share. You can't. You got to be willing to do kind yeah. of. Yeah, I, I, I happily sleep anywhere in ditches or under bridges or, you know, I don't spend money on accommodation. I think it's a waste of bloody money. It's like spending money on sex or water or parking. I just don't really do it, you know. So I just I, I map my experiences around that. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, Darcy's looking at money. He wants one more. One more. One more of your craziest stories. Um. Yes, I mean, we're. Where do you start? Well, I'll give you one more little hitchhiking story. I'll see. They how, can be I'll, long. I'll, I'm where they can be as long as you like. I'll see how my Irish accent goes because okay. it's, it's, sometimes it's okay and sometimes it's horrible. But I was hitchhiking in this same Irish hitchhiking, and there's 26 counties in Ireland, and I was I was on my my 20th, you know. So I'm thinking, shit, I might get all to all 26 counties. I was essentially doing one county a day for a month, and I've got my tripod with me and my backpack. And my tripod, I suppose would look like golf clubs to someone who thinks you're maybe hitchhiking around Ireland playing golf. I've got them there and this guy pulls in, I'm on the edge of town, uh, flings open his door, get in, get in, fucking get in, you know, <laughs> he's swearing. And uh, I get in, thanks, mate, yeah, just going to the next town, no worries. And uh, off he goes. Um, ah, so you're, uh, you're playing some golf, mate? You're playing a bit of golf? So no, no, it's actually a tripod. I'm just I'm here taking photos for of of Ireland. I tell him the whole spiel, 
and uh, nothing. We, we hear nothing and it, it's just a five-minute trip to the next town and we get into town and he pulls into the main street and opens the door. I open the door. He says, well, enjoy your fucking golf. <laughs> off I get. And I just thought it was a lovely little story. That he, <laughs> he didn't, he didn't listen. <laughs> he, he didn't give a shit. But I thought, yeah. And, and then I've often thought, wouldn't it be great to create a tripod that is a pull-apart three golf clubs? I've always thought that too. Yeah. And then I could do exactly that based on that little story. I go and play a round of golf with my tripod based on what this guy thought I was doing. That's fantastic. So there you have it, ending up uh, sleeping in jail while he's over there. But, yeah, there's just so many parts of this that I really loved. And I think the the one part that I love was Darcy actually did an incredible edit and, and Bo was saying something like, humans, we are stuck with so much potential, but we just don't access all the things in our brain that we want. And it's it's hard for me to um, articulate exactly what Bo was saying about that, but I just love the fact that this guy's such a go-getter. He is not into material things. He's into doing um, things and experiencing things. And yeah, he's just a really, really cool guy. He thinks on such a deep level. Um, we're, we're really keen. He spoke about it. He's doing a bit of a live show in, in some country towns that we want to definitely go up and um, and check out as well. And as I said, one of the most, one of probably my favorite alongside Jonah episodes of the year that I really, really enjoyed. One of those guys I just could have chatted to for hours on end. If you haven't listened to that one, Jonah and Bo Miles, please, please do. Next up, we had Salte, who, again, was another awesome experience. And thank you so much. A big shout out to The Bridge Project for getting that involved. That was episode 144. Salte is a, uh, a young man uh, from uh, Australia who's living in Shepparton. And, uh, he, you know, he found his, himself falling into a bit of a crime as a young kid and, and unfortunately got stuck down the wrong path in, in that space. But unfortunately, as I said, ended up uh, in, in prison and, and committing a, a, f- a few crimes. And, and this episode, uh, this episode, yeah, definitely speaks to some uh, aspects that we'd never really touched on before, which was really important, um, I think, for us to, to shed a light on this topic. I think when we think of criminal uh, activity or something, you know, people end up in jail, we can we can tarnish everyone with one brush. But until we hear the story of what people have actually been there for and the circumstances, it gives a lot of um, it doesn't give anyone an out at all for committing a crime, but you actually get a lot of context for for why some individuals have ended up like this. And and Salte was definitely in that case. He's a beautiful human that definitely did some wrong things and he owns up to that, but has been able to turn his life around with the Bridge Project and doing some really, really cool stuff. This snippet talks to the fact of when he was in jail and he got let out and, and, and he said that he was sort of nearly more comfortable in jail than he was on the outside and had to face a few demons. His mum was unfortunately sick. He didn't. He couldn't find any work and was contemplating even going back to crime. But got a really, really cool lifeline from um from a few special people. Here it is. At this stage as well in your mind, where are you at in terms of what where you want to be and what sort of man you want to become? Are you still considering crime? Like, is that still something for you? Has it has it clicked yet to go like, I want to be better, or is there still no. the urges to? No, not uh, not really. Like. <clears throat> So I was inside and um, for once in my life I was sober. And, yeah, once and how was that, by the way, coming down off with alcohol? Like that would have yeah, been- it was so shit. Like yeah. I was eating everything. Like I would just eat bread because I needed to eat. Mm. Um, so shit. And I think by the time I got to Fulham, I've already already detoxed everything, yeah. trained. Um, and then I. I said to myself, like, I set a goal that I wanted to be very fit. Now, I was inside training three times a day, five times a week. I was, a, like, I was beasting it. Um, 
and I was like, you know what, I want to get out, play sport, find a job. But then obviously every now and then, um, I, being inside is very, like, um, I don't know, racial. You you know, when you go inside, your islanders are, will be with your islanders, your Asians hang out with the Asians, Africans with the Africans, um, you know, even with religion, if you're Muslim, you hang around with all the Muslim brothers. Mm. So trying to stick your head down, trying to train, be healthy, but then also you got to be there for for my Islander brothers, mm. you know, if there were any politics. And trying to stay away from that, it's it's sort of hard because then you sort of let, like if I was to go in and I would hang out with them, but if I was not there for the crunch time, then they'll never be there for me. Yeah. And it was sort of like, so luckily enough, there wasn't any stages where I had to, you know, give up, whatever. But it hadn't clicked yet. Um, it, it it had clicked when I got out. Yeah. Um, so during the whole sentence, I, I never knew my mother was sick. And then when I got out, I literally walked through the gate and my mum was bold. And I was just like, what the hell? Like, what? And, you know, in my head I knew. I had known. I had known. I was just like, fuck. And... They sat me down and um, my mum was sick. She had breast cancer. And that's when it clicked for me. Like, she was, um, she was, like, she ran everything in the house. Mm. And, you know, the one person that leads is now sick. And now it all falls on me. And I was just like, fuck. Like, all my plans. I actually had a plan to come out and probably sell more drugs. Like, I wanted to sell drugs and try to be the Scarface of Melbourne. But once I seen it, I was just like, flew out the window and I was like, shit, what do I do now? It's like, you know, inside was all right for me because I was had no family. Like, I had no kids, nothing. I lived at home with my parents, running amok. For five, and then when I come out, it all had changed. Like, I'm not coming out as the sun, I'm coming out as the rock, mm. you know, and they needed a rock for the family and... I was just like, fuck, yeah, that's when it finally hit me. What do you remember from that as well? Like, you did you go back and start living with your mum while she was sick and, and going through treatments? Or? Yeah, yeah. Like, um, I was trying my best not to indulge in being free, but I was still. And then, um, you know, sh- shit got serious with, like, my mum and... and um, like, my dad's trying everything he can to take care of her. And I remember my mum doing the laundry. Like, she was trying to do the laundry. And I'm like, what are you doing? You know, you're sick. And she goes, well, if I don't do it, who is? And I was like, fuck. You know, how can you let your mum say that? You know, you're meant to be... You promised her when you seen her that you were going to change. And still you're letting your old lady who's got breast cancer, who's only probably hanging on by a thread, try to come do the washing for the whole family. So... It was hard and then, like, I, I don't know, I just knuckled down and I remember my um, CO officer told me to go to Colton. He goes, there's this job there you might like because we already tried another place. I didn't want it. And I remember going there and um, I had to leave early because I had to take my mum to treatment. And they go, oh, hold up real quick, real quick. 
we'll just do an interview now. And the boss come in and he goes, two minutes, tell me why I should hire you. And um, I was just like, and I dropped this Tokyo Drift line on him. <laughs> and I was like, which one? So, you know, when he says, oh, I don't care if you're in bed with Beyonce, when this phone calls, you pick it up. Yeah. And I was like, mate, I don't care if I'm in Sydney. If you want me here in the next six hours, I'll be here in three. I love it. And he's like, <laughs> and I could see the case managers in the back like, ooh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? And I was like. You were playing with Fast and Furious line. And like, yeah, so, and like, I went back, took my mum to treatment and. It was real hectic because, like, there's a process that goes on with rebuilding. I'm not trying to say, like, but it was very, very, like, I needed, at that time of my life, like, I needed money. I needed money now. And, mm. like, a um, couple weeks went by. I remember it was, like, there's one day my mum's worrying about money and rent and, and it really hit me. And, like, like, I remember crying that day because... I wanted to end my life. I was like, man, I was like, fuck, this sucks. Your mum's sick. You got out of prison. All your mates have moved on. You got nothing to your name. You're wearing old shitty clothes from two years ago that can't fit you. You can't even buy new clothes, you know? And I'm like, my life sucks right now. And I really wanted to end it. And just kept picturing in my head, like, I ended, then my mom's gone, who's going to look after my sisters and my dad? I was like, fuck, suck it up, suck it up. And I went drinking with my mate and I remember calling up about doing the job and this job would have gave me some money within the thousands or something. Like a a proper job. Like a criminal job? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. proper criminal job. And I'm like, and this guy who was my best mate, who now is my brother-in-law, was like, no. He goes, no, I'll come, I'll give you the money. You pay whatever. And I go, no, 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 man, I can't do that. He goes, let me do this job. And he goes, no, 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 I'll come over tomorrow. We'll talk about it. And I remember sitting there, it was Wednesday, and I was like, I was just like, I looked up to the stars and I said to God, I'm like, God, I go, you know, I don't ask you for much. I go, but when I do, you know, I always deliver on my end. I said, if this job doesn't call me up from rebuild on Friday, they got till Friday. Friday, end of business, 3 o'clock. If they don't call me out, then I'm going, like, I'm going to be the biggest criminal you ever seen, but I'm going to get some money, you know, and I'm going to make sure that if I go away, I'm going to make sure my family's set. The next day, my brother-in-law rocked up. He had money, and he goes, here, take this, pay it. I go, no, no, all goods already, you know. I've already said to myself, made a deal with myself. Friday I woke up and I shit you not, nine o'clock, Rebuild calls me and goes, you start Monday. And I was like, Phew. I was like, mate, I mean, like if you're not religious, then there's something to go on by. Yeah. But literally, like I said, Friday, close the business, no call, then that's it. So there you have it. That was Salte. Uh, again, if there's anything triggering in that chat, make sure you check out Lifeline and, and the contact here below is 13, 11, 14. Um, yeah, he's, a, he's an awesome guy spreading great match to Salte. I can't thank him enough. And, and also the Bridge Project too for all the incredible work they're doing. Next up, Tommy Harkin, episode 148. Tom Harkin, if you haven't listened to this episode, um, I had a bit of a crush on this guy when I was younger. This um, was the guy that, you know, really kick-started the mental health sort of journey for myself. And he did a, a documentary um, that really 
resonated with me when I was a young guy and always wanted to get into this space from that. It was really cool to be able to tell him that in person, um, the impact that he's had on me, which was was really special, to be honest, for myself. Um, in this episode, spoke a lot about young males um, being able to uh, express their emotions and, and why, you know, sometimes we, we struggle with that sort of thing. And he even spoke about all the incredible work he's doing with Tomorrow Man, um, going into schools and workplaces and, and, and such things. But um, yeah, this was a really cool snippet from the episode. Um, check it out. I remember this and, and I'm not saying this in a way to be like um, cute or, or anything, but I, I, I am a really emotional person. I remember even when I was a kid, mm. I'd be watching movies and like, I'd know that I was about to cry. Like yeah, I would yeah. just feel it. And I was like, I was gonna go to the bathroom for a second. And like <laughs> yeah, I'd just yeah, go yeah. like to the toilet and just sort yeah. of like wait for my eyes to like water down. Yeah. Come back. This when I was sitting next to my sister, sure. like yeah, next yeah. to my mum and dad. And I was yeah. like, fuck, I don't know what to do here. So I'm just gonna like pretend I need to go to the bathroom. Yeah, 100%. Um, and wait for it to go away. <laughs> but as yeah. I've gotten older, I realised that is such it is a strength for me. Like it yeah. is a massive strength. And that doesn't mean that I'm um, you know, less of a bloke. And actually I feel like it makes me makes me tougher and then yeah. it makes when I I do want to be, um, you know, tough and strong and, and I do want to have grit that it, that it helps it and it actually supports yep. it. So yep. talk us through range. Talk us through maybe how you educate um, young blokes and, and um, specifically young men in Tomorrow Man on this. For sure. And what might be something that like event- like when you first go into um, a, a, um, a school that you'd sort of run the program, how would it sort of take place? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it's a funny one. Like, I'll talk about the school second yeah. and, and range first. Is that 15 I, questions in that, yeah. one, that one? So just, just answer them all, please. The, the, the range piece is about, um, about empowerment. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's about me feeling empowered as a person. If, I, if, if you only give me one choice, that's not power. No, that's, that's just a straitjacket. That's the only thing you can do. The more choices you have, the more tools you've got in your toolkit just to take on life. Um, And so range is really about saying, do you have the range of tools, of attributes as a human being to live a full life? Or have you only been given like half the toolkit and you only get half life? So, all right, you got half the toolkit. You need to be strong at all times, invulnerable, you know, you need to be, you know, get it done. You need to be the guy that provides and always gets it done and never fails in that. Um, you need to be the ultimate man's man. You need to always put the boys first, never the girls first, just so you know. Like like all of that, like you just correlate with that with the stats if you take it as a given and you never move out of those bounds and you got a pretty intense life, you know, and, it, and it's probably going to struggle because it's like a, you know, a stick with no flex, you know, like you put enough pressure on one choice and it just snaps eventually. And once it snapped, how do you get it back together? It's really hard. So, you know, having flex and range means, okay, when this gets too much for me, I might say, hey, I'm a man's man. I just, I love this shit that you guys do, but I'm a man's man, you know, like that's just who I am. Mm-hmm. And you, know, I, you guys get up to that teary stuff and yeah, whatever. Let me know all, when you yeah. yeah, let me know when you do this later. Yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Like you can do that, but that guy might still get to a point where he's like, ah, as much as I hate this teary shit, I, like <laughs> the whole thing's going to come apart. And yeah. so I've, I've got to do a bit of this. I've got to come back over here and just get a bit of range and do a bit of that. I still might not define myself as that kind of guy, but at least I can go there when I need to go there for the health of myself and the people I love. And so I feel like range is just saying, like, the thing that's always, I don't, I don't know where this came from, 
I, but I've always just been scared of shit. You know what I mean? Like, like I mean, everybody's scared of stuff. You're scared of going up to the girl you want to pash or whatever. You're scared of you know going for it. You're scared of starting a podcast. Scared of getting up in front of people, starting a business, whatever. Everybody's scared of stuff. The thing that always got me over that was thinking I'm only here once, like one life, one shot only. Now other people have different beliefs. Personally, I believe I'm here once. I got one crack and I don't want to miss out on it. So I want to have it all, you know. I want to kiss the girl. I want to, you know, have my heart broken. I want to I just want to do stuff, you know what I mean? Like why should I miss out on stuff? I want to I want to cry on my wedding day like I did and say I love you. You're it. Like this one shot I got, you're it. I want to do this with you. I want to rock a dance floor. That wasn't on the cards for Frankston Kid. You don't rock a dance floor. You stand on the side, you tap your toe at most and you just hold your beer and, and grunt, you know. No, no, fuck that. I want to, I want to rock the dance floor and, and, and I want to have stoic strength at the right time. I want people to know that I'm strong. I can tuck it up at the right moment and I can get it done. So I, I feel like, you know, at the heart of it, what's not on the on, on the marketing or on the website and things like that at times is like no one should miss out. Mm. No woman should miss out, no man should miss out and nobody identifying as everything else in between should miss out on living this thing. Like we're only here once, like we should live it. And so you got to ask, are we getting the tools to do it? Like do we have enough range so there you have it that was tommy harkin from episode 148 couldn't recommend that one more guys i definitely love the education inspiration section the most that's for sure last but not least in oh no it's not last actually that's there's one more after this episode first episode of the year which will be the first episode of next year as well number 128 also number 81 emma is on the pod a fair bit um in this little snippet here, there's so much gold in there, but we talk a lot about habit stacking. Uh, talks about the the context of, you know, if you go and have a coffee, match that with doing something else that you're trying to add into your life, um, which was really, really cool. We always get so many messages about the MMRE episodes, but I think this was one that people really, really loved. Here it is. Habit stacking is something that... Oh, no, yeah. Is having, that like... Yeah. With, you know, I, you, you spoke about it last time mm. and that was one thing that I was like, I didn't really understand much about. I spoke to Mark Matthews about it, who was mm-hmm. like, you know, a big wave surfer. And then that was when it like clicked for me. Yeah, probably. Uh, probably. He explained it. No, no, no. It was just <laughs> like sometimes you hear something so many yeah, times, yeah. like oh, whatever, 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 and then you're like, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So now, when I can get you know consistent at these things, habit stacking, and you'd be better to explain it. But I do when I have my coffee in the morning. That's when I go. All right, now let's be present. Feel my feet on the ground. Yeah. So it's like every time I have my coffee, I be present. Yeah, Every that's time right. I walk my dog, I leave my phone at home. So yes. they're like my two things that I can just like stick with. But if you'd like to explain the actual... Well, I think you've done a great yeah. job of explaining that we already have habits in our life, mm. cleaning our teeth, you know, having a coffee. Um, we, when you sit down and look at your life, there's a lot of habits that you do every single day. And to just bring in a new habit is very difficult. So if someone said to you, um, Dill, why don't you go an hour and a half a day with no phone? You would try for a few days and it's like, I can't do this. But because you already have the habit of taking the dog and you stack on top of that the habit of not taking your phone when you take your dog, it's easy because you already have an ingrained habit going there and you're just piggybacking onto it. So some people do when I'm um, cleaning my teeth, that's when I, have, I go through three things I'm grateful for. Um, you know, the coffee, that's when I get in, encourage people to have a coffee 
either in a courtyard, on a balcony, mm. sitting by a window. That's when you – but we don't. We have a coffee and we're scrolling or we're looking at our emails. So now a coffee, which could be a really great str- way to break the stress that has already built up from the snooze button and the – you know, maybe you went to get something and it was in the dirty washing basket, all these little mini stresses. Then I have my coffee. That can be a great stress cycle, time to break the stress cycle. But we are scrolling, looking at our emails and freaking out further. So stack a habit onto it. Of I give myself that time to be mindful. I, I really, I get nervous using that word mindful because I think we lose people. I think, I think so because as soon as, even me sometimes, when you're not ready to hear it, you just go, yeah. oh, I can't do that right now. Yeah, I yeah. Just- I try not to say it. So just think of mindful when I say, so let's stack the habit on that's when I'm mindful. That is when I am just giving my attention a job so my attention cannot be on the stuff that is creating the stress. Mm. So a job like, what do my feet feel like? What does my breath feel like? What can I see out the window? Gives you five minutes, two minutes, one minute where you're not paying attention to um, the stories that are stressing you. That will not be the last year of Emma Murray. She's uh, a stalwart of the, of the podcast and will be around a lot in 2023. So stay tuned for the start of that. She'll be absolutely unbelievable. And last but not least... The second episode of uh, 2022, gee whiz, we hit the ground absolutely running. Emma Murray into Richard Harris, who is uh, Australian of the Year, was one of the Australians of the Year, sorry, mind you. He went over to Thailand. He's not just an anaesthetist. He's also a cave diver that went over to Thailand and rescued the 14 Thai um, soccer team uh, young boys in the cave. And um, he goes into detail on this story. Like, I... I it's unbelievable. I felt like I was just yeah, just listening to it one-on-one. It was incredible to listen to this story, the calmness, the calculation of all these things. Here it is. You've got to listen to this full episode. Check it out. So the first boy that you, you swim up to, you're there, um, obviously in the wetsuit. He's got his face mask on. You put him to sleep. Does it go to plan? Yeah, well, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I wasn't really sure what it was what it was supposed to look like at that, spo- at that, at that point. But, yeah, so... Um, Jason, uh, one of the Brits, was the going to take the first boy out. Uh, Jason's particularly courageous sort of bloke. He's always up for being the first at, at anything. So he goes up the hill to see the kids, make sure the kid's got his wetsuit on, a little buoyancy jacket, uh, hood and so forth, and um, then brings the kid down the hill. The kid sits on my lap. I'm sort of half in the water, so he's just sitting on my knee. And I give him the two injections to make him go to sleep. And once he's asleep, we then put the mask on his face and because, you know, they're quite claustrophobic things. I didn't want to upset the kids any more than, than necessary. Once the mask is on his face, then um, Jason would go off and get his own diving equipment ready because he's going to take this boy all the way through the cave uh, while I look after the next kid. And um, I then need to make sure the mask is sealing properly on the kid's face. So I do a few experiments, just pushing his face into the water and then lifting him up and checking again to see if any water's gone inside. Do that two or three times until I finally am happy. And then lie him, lie him down, face down in the water, just uh, let him sort of bubble and breathe away there. We also had decided to tie the kid's hands behind their backs and tie their feet together and Two reasons for that. Firstly, to make sure they're as streamlined as possible so that when Jason, for example, got to the f- one of these very tight restrictions, he, he would be able to push him through like a bit of a dart so that he wasn't getting tangled up or hooked up on anything. 
Um, and um, also, if the sedation suddenly wore off underwater, we didn't want the kid to panic and reach up and rip his mask off, or even more importantly, rip the regulator out of Jason's mouth and, and drown him, because, you know, a 15-year-old soccer player is pretty strong. So, um, you know, sort of two reasons for trussing the kids up a bit. But I can tell you, morally, that felt almost as bad as pushing an unconscious child's face into the water. It was um, a bit of a, a new low in terms of my career at that point. I felt that, you know, this was probably euthanasia, not, not rescue that we were doing here. Um, but um, as you know, we got those first four kids out successfully on the first day and then repeated it for the next two days. What was it like getting the first one out? Is it, do you remember the feeling? Do you remember, was it more just relief? Do you remember the, the reception from everyone else that was there? Were they just like, what the hell? What was, what was the response like? Yeah, well, I wasn't aware of how any of this had gone until I got out of the cave at the end of the day because we had no communications with the outside wow. world. We were a long way underground. And so I was just sending these kids off one by one. And apart from on the first day with the first couple of kids, I had no idea whether they'd even survived the first small dive that they had to do. So we got Rick Stanton in the next dry chamber along to uh, come back in and tell me what the result was of that first dive. I was supposed to wait for him to come back after the first kid, but I actually forgot and uh, let him uh, and sent the second child through, which caused a bit of trouble in the in the next chamber because they weren't quite prepared for that. But anyway, finally I, I remembered and then Rick came back and said, well, the first two have survived that first little dive so so far so good because sorry they, they had to go from different chambers didn't they and get re-injected again and yeah and go back yeah so there were five separate dives if you like over the two and a half kilometers on the way out and in between the dives they're either just floating down the river uh, with their airspace above them or in a couple of spots to be picked up and carried over some rocks and things then back into the water again a bit like uh, whitewater rafting i suppose uh, with some <laughs> underwater sections so, yeah, so until I got out at the end of the day, I didn't know whether I was going to be told that all four had died, half had died, or all successful. So, yeah, I was pretty happy to hear that they'd, they'd made it out, but completely surprised as well. I can imagine it'd be a massive relief, a surprise, but then also that dawning factor, like, fuck, we've got to go back tomorrow and do that again. Yeah, well, in fact, that realisation was a real low point for the three-day rescue for me because after the first day having had some success... And suddenly everything's changed, right? Like the expectations are, well, you've got it right. And so if someone dies now, then fingers are going to be pointed. Well, you must have done something wrong. And um, so that night I remember actually feeling more pressure than any other time um, during the rescue. Um, and it was uh, after the second day was successful, then I just started to feel cautiously optimistic that maybe we're going to actually get away with this. There, was there any hairy moments? I know that the whole moment, the whole experience was was hairy and there was always points that were, were bubbling up, but was there anything in there that you were, on, on the second two days, it was like, oh, geez, this one, this one might not make it or this one could be a bit trickier than the others? Yeah, well, a couple of the kids had chest infections, so I could hear them coughing away, and that often causes trouble anaesthetising kids. They can often sort of hold their breath or have other medical problems arise under anaesthesia and actually it was the, f the, f the last boy on the first day that came probably the closest to dying. Um, he was not really breathing properly under the anaesthesia and so Rick was the one who was taking him through. So knowing that he wasn't quite right, I quickly put my gear on and followed him out of the cave and when I got through that first dive, 
um, I found Rick and Craig, who was waiting there to help, you know, look after the kids as they came through. I found them with this kid pulled up on the beach there and um, looking pretty ordinary. They, they were worried about him. He didn't seem to be breathing at all. So I quickly got out of my gear and, and in fact, he, he wasn't breathing. He was really blue and I was just to give him, just about to give him mouth to mouth and I just uh, opened his airway by pushing on the back of his jaw. And that's actually pretty painful stimulus to do that. Um, so it's not a bad test to make sure people really are unconscious. And um, that was enough to make him take a breath. So it was pretty close. Uh, I reckon, you know, another couple of minutes, he would have been in real, real strife. Far oh, that's yeah, it's ex- extremely stressful. I can I can also remember watching um, parts of the, of the documentary as well. I think one of the last boys um, on the last day might have been the one that you were alluding to earlier. That was the twenty nine kilo young young man, and and the face mask was just too big for his head. And yeah. talking through how how stressful that was that was to try and actually get him out. Yeah, well, I didn't realise that the last kid was so small. I thought all the small kids had gone. So we'd save these um, because we had five to do on the last day instead of the usual four. We didn't have enough of the masks that we'd come to trust and and like. So we'd taken two other masks in just for, you know, we thought, well, we'll just have to make it up as we go along with these other masks. And we had to get all those kids out that day because the forecast was really you know, um, threatening then. In fact, it had started raining the day before and we were worried about the, the water levels in the cave. So I'm there with Jason, the last the last kid, the last guy, and down the hill comes this kid and I'm just I'm looking at him and I'm just like horrified how small he is. He's the smallest of all the boys. He's, he's the 29-kilo kid. And I'm looking at Jason going, these masks are not going to fit this boy. And um, but he's got to come out and he's in the water and so the clock's ticking because he'll start to get cold and so I anaesthetise him and we try the first mask and it's just like one and a half times the width of his face you could put your hands in the sides and it was just going to fill up with water straight away so it was just out of the question so then we had this little pink mask that looked like a toy compared to the commercial diving gear that we had been using and it was all sort of soft and flopping around and it just didn't look safe at all. Um, and, you know, Jason's really worried that he's going to be the guy who kills the one and only kid for the trip. And in the end, we sort of padded out his hood. We put some foam under his hood to make his face bigger and we got it sealed on there, but it looked terrible. And I said, Jason, I'm sorry, mate, you're just going to have to go because otherwise we're going to have to re-anesthetise the kid. He's getting colder by the minute and he has to go today, so... Off you go. So off he went and Jason, you know, um, took such good care of that kid. He protected his face to make sure the mask didn't get uh, bumped or knocked or anything. And must have been a hell of a stressful for dive for him. But, yeah, they got him out safely. I can't imagine how stressful that would have been, um, getting the last one out when that seems like the hardest one to, to get done. Do you remember the elation of finally finding out that it had all been successful? Do you remember coming out of the cave with... All, four day, uh, all, all of the boys rescued and just thinking, what the fuck did we just do? Yeah, well, when I got to chamber three, which is the final chamber that you reach when the diving's finished, um, and the Americans are there to sort of help me out of the water, I ended up taking one of the kids that last little dive because uh, one of the other divers actually had a bit of a near miss himself. So I took Jeez. the kid from him on my way out and uh, took the kid through that section and uh, handed off this kid and the Americans are going, that's it, mate, they're all alive. Fantastic, because Jason and his boy had already been through and 
I just honestly, I was so exhausted after four days of, you know, two or three hours sleep a night, 12 hours underground each day, late night meetings. And I was just so knackered. I honestly, I didn't, it took a while to sink in. But then we all stood around in Chamber 3, all the divers and lots of the ties. Uh, we're still waiting for the Navy SEALs who are still in the cave to come out. And we're all just standing around with these stupid grins on our face looking at each other. No one could really talk very much. Um, and it was just, you know, you could just, uh, if a look counted for anything, we could just tell that it was just an amazing moment. There you have it. That was Richard Harris. Since this pod, they've made a movie on this. Joel Edgerton, I think, is is uh, playing his role. And it's a coinc- is it a coincidence that they did that after the podcast? I think not. Um, or we're going to take credit for that. But no, in all seriousness, they've made a movie on this thing. And we got to sit there one-on-one and have a chat with him, which was, yeah, really, really uh, grateful that experience. So make sure you check that one out. That's 129. Um, of the uh, of the podcast. It was the second one of, of 2022. There you have it, fam. That was education and inspiration. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't heard any of those ones and you want to, make sure you go back and, um, and listen to those ones. So we cannot thank you enough. Stay safe over the break, whatever you're doing. Um, send love, get some trees around you, get some water, get some nature, get in your garden, play some golf, send some messages to your friends and loved ones and catch up. Set some goals as well. Write down something you want to do in 2022. I'm oh, sorry, 2023, mind you. It might be some habit stacking, might be anything else. You might even want to take up cave diving. I'm not sure. Whatever it is, it's your year. Get it done. Can't wait to see us more in uh, 2023. Ilya KO's got you covered for this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. AFL, here we go. Carlton versus Melbourne with no ad breaks during play. That is going to be an absolute banger. Last time these two uh, got together, well, not the last time, when I was there, I kicked three. Freo versus Swans, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. And the Hawks versus Saints, live with no ad breaks during play, is going to be an absolute blockbuster. It's a must win for both of these teams. And don't forget the NBA playoffs. Gee whiz, they are going off at the moment. So many big games to mention, and they will be absolutely enthralling. Watch every game live with both Eastern and Western conferences live with ESPN on KO. There's absolutely plenty of room for everyone, so get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble.